as we talked about last Lord's Day, one of the greatest tragedies of life is a misunderstanding. Misunderstandings. They cause some of life's greatest difficulties. People often misunderstand what we say. They misunderstand our motives. I didn't really mean that. They misunderstand our actions. Misunderstandings. They can cause a breach in lifelong friendships. Misunderstandings can destroy relationships. And the sad thing is that misunderstandings are quite common in our world today. In fact, they happen all the time. Now, one, day, one way that you can be sure that you're going to be misunderstood is if you speak in formalities and you speak in technicalities. If you persist in using some kind of specialized and technical jargon, you can be certain that you're going to be misunderstood by us lesser mortals such as myself. Those of us who are not sophisticated and who are not initiated into the ways of the world. It's like the story I heard about a lawyer who was involved in a courtroom case. It was a personal injury suit. And he asked the plaintiff on the witness stand, he said, And is it true that you were shot in the lumbar region? And the plaintiff said, no, no, sir, we weren't in the woods at all. So he asked a follow-up question. He said, well, sir, I understand you and the defendant were involved in an altercation. No, sir, he's not my tailor. The lawyer's getting a little frustrated. He said, well, let's try it again. Did, did, did he or did he not shoot you in the fracas? No, it was closer to my belly button, I'd say. I got more of those. I'll be here all month. If you insist on speaking in technicalities, you can easily be misunderstood. And we're talking about things that people misunderstand about churches of Christ. And one of the things that people so often misunderstand about churches of Christ is our emphasis upon restoration. We talked last Lord's Day about the goal of restoration. And we used an illustration from Nehemiah chapter 8 where Ezra read the law and they restored, Israel restored God's way of doing things. I want us to fully understand this goal of restoration. I want us to fully understand why this goal of restoration is so important. Restoring God's original way of doing things. There's another example of restoration in the history of God's people. And it takes place in 2 Samuel chapter 6. 
Now this event took place about 500 years more or less before the example in Nehemiah chapter 8. David has not been on the throne long in Israel. Before David begins thinking about the Ark of the Covenant. If you'll remember, back in 1 Samuel chapter 4, when Eli was sitting at the gate of the city and they brought news to him that the dreaded enemy, the Philistines, had killed his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, and the dreaded Philistines had stolen and taken captive the Ark of the Covenant. That's when Eli fell off the seat backwards and broke his neck. Well, more or less, the Philistines, after that battle, the Philistines held on to the Ark for seven months, more or less. I'm giving you the Reader's Digest condensed version of all those things now. Seven long, miserable months for the Philistines. All that time, they were on the business end of the wrath of God. So the Philistines figured out the ark is what's causing all this, so they sent the ark of the covenant back to Israel. And for this five, for all these years, the ark has been in storage. It's been in a guy's garage, you might say. But now David, the man after God's own heart, is the man on the throne. David was different from his predecessor, Saul. David had a heart that was on fire for the Lord. I like to say David had a holy heartburn. And David's ambition was that Jerusalem would be the center of worship for the kingdom of Israel. But for that to happen, David knew that he needed to get the ark back in its rightful place. He knew that the ark of the covenant, the ark of God, had to be in the tabernacle. Because you see, the glory of God rested upon that gold-covered chest. Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, you find its moving day for the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in David's mind, moving the Ark of the Covenant, it was a very sacred duty. It wasn't a job that they wanted to just turn over to Chuck in a truck and have Chuck go and get it. The Ark represented the presence of God, the God of heaven. And moving the ark, it was a very important, very significant event in the life of the nation of Israel. We're told that David gathered all the chosen men of Israel. You, you can read this if you want to. It's in Second Samuel 6. 30,000 of these chosen men of Israel. And he put together a band of musicians for the royal procession to precede the ark back to Jerusalem. They had harps. They had psalteries. We'd call that a dulcimer. They had timbrels, tambourines, coronets and cymbals. But then there's the matter of how is the ark going to be transported? Second Samuel chapter 6 and verse 3 tells us that they were going to set the ark of God on a new cart. They weren't going to take some old rickety cart that they had to clean up. They got a new cart. 
You see, David obviously attached a great deal of importance to this. He attached a great deal of significance to this move. Well, if you remember your Old Testament history, as they're transporting the ark and they go across a threshing floor, the oxen stumble, it hits a rough place. And the ark is teetering and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark. And when that happened, God was angered. And Uzzah was struck dead right then and there. At that point in 2 Samuel 6, we're told that David was displeased with the Lord. But we're also told that David was afraid. So they took the ark and they put it in storage for another three months. But David didn't just use that three months sitting around twiddling his thumbs and wringing his hands and wondering how we're going to do this. David did some research. He did his homework. He googled the Ark of the Covenant. And he found in the Law of Moses specific instructions on how the Ark was to be moved. They're found in Exodus chapter 25 and verses 12 through 15. I'm reading this from the English Standard Version. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet. Two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia, acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you'll put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark and carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And then there are further instructions in Numbers chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 and 15. When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. They shall put on it a covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth all of blue and shall put in its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. You remember that's what happened with others. Thou shalt, they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. Now, David read all that in the law of Moses. And so David restored the practice. David did it. Instead of getting that new card, instead of doing it the way he had planned with all the musicians and everything, David decided he would do it God's way and brought the ark back to where it was belonged. I'm reading now from 1 Chronicles 15, verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 11 and read verses 11 through 15. David built houses for himself in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God, and pitched a tent in it. Then David said that no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God 
Listen to it. For the Lord had chosen them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister to him forever. Now down to verse 11. Then David summoned the priests, Zadok and Abiathar and the Levites, Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadab, and said to them, You are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. Because you did not carry it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us, because we did not seek Him according to the rule. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses has commanded, according to the word of the Lord. I want you to notice especially verses 13 through 15. Because you did not carry it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek Him according to the rule. So the priests and Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses has commanded, according to the word of the Lord. David confesses that when they tried to do it the first time, they did it their way. His way. And not God's way. And then he says they restored God's original plan. He says we did as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. And like we talked about last week, what we have there is a pattern of restoration. Of God wanting things Restored to be done God's way. And that's important to us. It's important to us to restore God's way of doing things. You remember last week we talked about Nehemiah's day? They restored God's way of doing things by living in temporary huts during the Feast of Tabernacles. They hadn't done it for over a thousand years, but they discovered they'd been doing it wrong. Here, they restored God's way of moving the ark. We believe, sincerely, the New Testament contains a general pattern of beliefs and practices. Beliefs and practices that God expects the local church to follow. Don't start looking for them numbered one through however many in one neat place. They're not there. The pattern is found in the overarching, overall teaching of the New Testament. And what we're committed to do is restore that general pattern God has given in this book for the local church. What we want to do, as much as we possibly can, is be as close to what that church in the first century was as we possibly can. 
We want to be as much like that church in the first century so that if Paul were to walk in, he'd say, oh yeah, I recognize this. We have a burning desire to conform to the pattern that God has laid down. And our prayer is, our daily prayer, is that's what we're doing. In 1 Corinthians 14, for example, I want to give some examples of patterns in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul lays down some rules for who could speak in the church assembly. Now remember that the Bible was not originally divided for us into chapters and verses. And the Corinthian letter was just that. It was a letter. So I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And as we look at it as a letter, look at the last part of verse 33. And then as it goes forward. And in the latter part of verse 33, Paul writes, As in all the churches of the saints... He says, as in all the churches of the saints. I had the wrong passage marked. I apologize for that. He says, as in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silence in the churches. When Paul wrote that, it's a letter. There wasn't a verse break there. So Paul is saying, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silent in the assembly, in the churches, for it's not permitted unto them to speak. Now, you know I like to read from various modern speech translations from time to time. And this is not going to be Phillips, and it's not going to be the English Standard Version. It's going to be Moffat, Dr. Moffat. Here is the way Dr. Moffat translates that passage. As is the rule in all churches of the saints, women must keep quiet at gatherings of the church. You see, when it came down to who could speak in the assembly, the Corinthian church wasn't allowed to make up their own rules according to culture or according to society or according even to political correctness. It was not something that was subject to what was popular. And it was not something that was up for majority rule. It was the apostolic authority of Paul who said, as is the rule in all the churches of the saints, women must keep quiet at the gatherings of the church. Paul required them in Corinth to follow the same rule that all the other congregations of the saints were following. And he expected that speaking in church policy to be the same from congregation to congregation to congregation. And folks, that's a pattern. Then there's another example of a pattern over in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas took their first missionary trip to Asia Minor. That's modern day Turkey. And along the way on this trip, they planted churches at Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. They later moved on to a place called Derby, and they planted a church there. And then they decided they'd retrace their steps and strengthen the brethren in those churches. And we're told in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, that on that second visit, 
They appointed elders in each church. They wanted to make certain that each one of those local congregations had elders. Folks, that's a pattern. And then there's another pattern you'll find in 1 Corinthians 16. And this is one of those patterns that all religious groups are more than ready to follow, okay? It's there that Paul tells the Corinthian brethren about the collection for God's people. He says, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God has prospered him. When he tells them that, what does he tell them ahead of that? As in the churches of Galatia. He's already telling them, he's already told them that's what he told the churches in the Galatian region to do. And now he says, you brethren in Corinth, Paul gave the Corinthian congregation the exact same instructions he had given to all the churches in the region of Galatia. And this idea of a pattern is something that a lot of folks have never really given any thought to. But from these few examples, I think we can see there's a general pattern in the New Testament that God wants His people to follow. Or to put it another way, God wants some things to be the same in every congregation. And when you see that, you see the foundational belief that motivates us in our quest to as much as possible restore the church to what the church was in the first century. Over the years, there have been a lot of practices of the first century that have been lost. The fact that we call for a restoration of New Testament beliefs and practices indicates that many of those have been lost through the years. Now, to be sure, most all church groups today have lost some important parts of God's pattern. The pattern revealed in the New Testament. There are some groups that are closer to conforming to the pattern than others are. Now having said that, please, please, I'm begging you, don't misunderstand me. Don't misrepresent me. But stay with me. I want you to know I have the utmost respect for all of my friends in whatever religious group they're a part of. And I love them with all of my heart. While I might point out that some might not be conforming to certain parts of God's pattern for the church, I want you to know something. Write it down. Remember it. There is not one single holier-than-thou thought anywhere in my head. It doesn't exist. And there are no delusions of perfection swirling around there either. Because I believe, Paul, when he said, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What I'm attempting to do in my humble and feeble way, and God knows it's feeble, 
is acknowledge the reality that God's original instructions for His church can be lost. I mean, after all, David was a man after God's own heart. And at the very beginning this morning, we saw that David even lost sight of God's instructions along the way. But we believe the New Testament contains a general pattern. A pattern for every local church to follow. What we're committed to do right here is follow that pattern to the very best of our ability and to the very best of our understanding. We want to conform to that pattern. We want to do things God's way. We want to do Bible things in Bible ways. And our hope and our prayer, our earnest prayer, is those who want to follow Jesus Christ would see the importance of conforming to that pattern as it's outlined on the pages of God's book. And that someday we could all cast aside the things that divide us and unite on the Word of God. You see, when it comes to becoming a part of the body of Christ, a member of the church, there's a pattern for that also. It was the first Pentecost after the resurrection of Jesus, and Peter was preaching in Jerusalem. It was an audience composed primarily of Jews that day. Peter told that audience about David, about how great he was. David, our, David was, our father was great. He was wonderful. But he's dead and buried in his sepulcher. is with us even right now. But he said, Jesus, God raised him up. And we're all witnesses of that fact. Peter brought that sermon to a close that day. And he looked at that crowd that day and he said, This same Jesus you have crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. Now look at what happens there. When they heard that, it says they were pricked in their hearts. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children, all them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words, did He testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this entour generation. Dr. Luke says those that gladly received His word were baptized. There were added to them that day about 3,000 souls. Now you skip down to verse 47. It says the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. You see what Peter told those people to do on Pentecost. That's what makes someone a Christian. A member of the body of Christ. Nothing more than a Christian. Nothing less than a Christian. Nothing else. Just a simple New Testament Christian. That's how we surrender our stubborn will to the will of Jesus and make Him Lord and Master of our lives. Maybe you've never done that, and if you haven't, I beg you to do it before you leave this building today. But maybe you've done that. But along the way, Jesus hasn't been the Lord and Master of your life. If Jesus is not Lord and Master of all of your life, wait for it. He's not Lord and Master at all in your life. Are there changes you need to make? 
If you need to make changes for Jesus to be Lord of your life, this is the opportunity to do that as we stand and while we sing.